Hey folks, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This week on Below the Radar, Am Johal is joined by sociologist Lindsay Freeman, an SFE researcher and author who is interested in atomic and nuclear cultures, memory, poetics, and the rain. She and Am discuss Lindsay's current research project and her latest book, This Atom Bomb in Me, in which she unpacks the American nuclear culture that permeates the late 1980s and recounts growing up in the radioactive city of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to Below the Radar. We're here today with our guest, Lindsay Freeman. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Your your book has been getting uh, rave reviews. I have it in front of me, This Atom Bomb in Me. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the project uh, started. You know, the first sentence starts with, my grandfather was an atomic courier. That's like already a very rich beginning. So... Wondering if you can share a little bit where the project started and, and, and how you came up with it. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I've really been thinking about Oak Ridge, Tennessee and sort of atomic America really my whole life because as it starts out in the book that my grandfather was an atomic courier, um, which means that he transported secret documents and materials across the United States, both during the Manhattan Project and um, during the Cold War. And so I actually did my dissertation thinking about atomic history and thinking about Oak Ridge. And I wrote, a, I wrote one book about it, and I thought I would be done. Um, and then I realized I had a lot of unanswered questions. And so this project really comes out of my previous work and my own kind of ambivalence about my relationship to atomic America and this town of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And this isn't a traditional academic uh, book in a way. There's a lot of personal storytelling. You do go into theoretical questions as well. And wondering, um, in terms of the form of the book, uh, how you decided to go in this direction? Because I find it fascinating. It's very inviting. Oh, thank you. I mean, that was the goal, right, for it to be inviting. Um, Yeah, well, I originally started writing uh, this or parts of this book really just for myself to try to answer some questions I had. And then I, um, I delivered them at several conferences and spaces and I, people seemed to like it. So then I thought, well, maybe this is from beyond just my own questions. Um, and the format itself was inspired by the genre of sociological poetry, which is what C. Wright Mills, the 20th century American sociologist, called the work of James A.G., And Mills was really inspired by this and thought that more sociology should include kind of personal emotions and connections with with the material that people were writing about. So I kind of took that and ran with it and gave me kind of some disciplinary um, positioning, but also allowed for creativity in a different lens. And when you think about nuclear weapons, atomic weapons, uh, in the kind of popular culture imaginary, the Cold War, all of these resonances come up. And one of the points that you make in the book is that there is a kind of direct connection between Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and, and Hiroshima. And and wondering how that kind of um, these connections about where one grows up and all of the kind of uh, jobs, employment, culture of a place, and how it uh, kind of affects all of these lives... Yeah, um, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, it was a secret city during the Manhattan Project, and its main 
purpose from the beginning was to create an atomic bomb. And the role that it played in the Manhattan Project and in World War II was to separate all the uranium that went into the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And um, the book is kind of a reckoning of my attempt to reckon with that with that past and, and sort of understanding what that means. Um, so a very, very direct connection with Hiroshima, although in, in the town, most people have a kind of party line that this was a necessary uh, weapon and it ended the war and saved lives on both sides is what they always say. But there is a kind of atomic inevitability in their thinking about about that weapon and about the Cold War weapons as well that followed. Mm-hmm. You you bring up pop culture figures in different parts of the book, from Mr. Rogers to Bob Ross from public television, and wondering if you can talk a little bit about those parts of the, the book. Sure. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to show about the book was how atomic culture just permeated everything um, during the time that I grew up in the late Cold War in the 1980s. Um, including, you know, television shows, children's toys, movies, really all culture songs were saturated with this atomic imaginary. And Mr. Rogers actually did a full week on nuclear issues and really acting for a nuclear peace and nuclear disarmament and kind of pointing out how the arms race had made people in the world go kind of insane. And I was really struck by remembering that and then going back and watching the episodes, which were pretty radical. And then Bob Ross, you know, who knows? I'm saying it's maybe part of the nuclear unconscious, but he paints a mushroom cloud. And I remembered it directly. And then he paints a a winter scene over it. And so I wrote this piece, and I was just desperate to use the image. And I thought, there's no way the Bob Ross people are going to let me use this picture in the book. But much to my delight, they did, and without a fee or anything. So, wow, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So at one point in the book, you talk about mooning the Russians. Mm. What is mooning the Russians? <laughs> what was mooning the Russians? What do you mean by that? I never thought in my professional life I would write about mooning or be asked about it on an interview. So, well, mooning is where you sort of drop your shorts and and show your butt to people, right? And this was a very popular activity between my brother and I. And my brother was uh, five years older than me, and so sometimes I think he was he was using this to his advantage. But around my grandparents' house, once we were mooning cars, well, I was mooning cars at his at his direction, and um, we would we would always pretend that there were Russian spies everywhere, you know. And so we would we would shout out for America, you know, at the spies that we imagined. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. And uh, at one point you talk about uh, radioactive Frogger. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. There was, a, there was a time in Oak Ridge in, I think it was 1991, the early 90s, where Uh, Some frogs and some herons and some geese kind of collected around a pool that contained what they like to call in a nice way legacy materials, which is radioactive waste from the 1940s and 50s. Um, And what happened there is they decided that that some of the, the goose droppings around town were radioactive and they had to do something about it. And so they tried to close off this pond so the geese couldn't get into this radioactive material. 
But when they put a covering over it, it also stopped the herons from eating the frogs who were living in this little pond. And so then the frogs multiplied to such an extent that they leaped out of the pond, that the netting couldn't contain them. And so these frogs were jumping all over town and they were radioactive, so people would run over them with their cars and their tires would become radioactive. And it became a real problem and an a national story. So much of the stories around Oak Ridge are contained, but this one did leak out. So you had journalists from all over the country coming to like look at these radioactive frogs, you know, which they imagined would be extra large or have many eyes or arms and legs coming out of the wrong spots. Um, but they look just like regular frogs, much to people's disappointment. Um, but for me, I just was obsessed with, you know, the Atari generation. My brother and I played these um, computer games and video games, and I just could only imagine, you know, trying to move the frogs across the highway to be safe. Here in Vancouver, uh, there's a number of people that have done uh, different forms of research around the nuclear question and other pieces. People like John O'Brien, Serge Guibault, know that Roxanne Pinchassi in the history department is looking at the French uh, role in, in, in Algeria. I'm wondering, uh, have you been in touch with these, have you been in conversation with some of these people? Yes, a lot of people. It's it's kind of amazing. Um, nuclear people always find each other in the in the scholarly and artistic universe, I feel like. So I've been doing lots of projects with several of these people. Also with a colleague in communications department, Svetlana Matevinko, um, and Eldridge Priest from Contemporary Arts, we went to Chernobyl together on a project. Roxanne and I have had many conversations about the nuclear imaginary, both, um, both in France and America, and how we all kind of convene in, this, in Canada um, to talk about these issues. So I think that um, nuclear is, is a pressing question still today as much or maybe even as more as it was 10 or 20 years ago because the ecological crisis, I think, multiplies all crises, including the nuclear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, you have a few um, new research projects that you're uh, working on uh, for the cosmos to Boris, the tiny, uncanny, uh, a few other ones. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the research that you're doing now. Sure. I keep trying to get away from nuclear things a little bit, so I've been I've been doing what I've considered as a side project that I sometime want to move into a, a more central project about miniatures for many years. And what I'm interested in there is kind of our relationship with scale and thinking about what can be contained and, and what exceeds something in terms of size compared to the human scale. Um, so The Tiny Uncanny I'm writing as a series of thesis on what miniatures do and mean to people. Um, so that's ongoing. I think I'm, I've maybe got 13 thesis. I'm, I'm shooting for 99. <laughs> so we'll see. For the cosmos to bore us really is to understand how atmosphere affects social life. So I'm thinking a lot about how the rainy atmosphere of Vancouver influences how we interact or, or don't interact with each other. And that's also folding in some uh, peculiarities of ecological crisis as well in dealing with atmosphere in a, in a pretty general sense. But trying to, I always try to hook it on, hook my work onto something local. 
so that I can have some real empirical evidence. So it's it's theoretically informed, but also I'm trying to get to the nitty-gritty details of of the life that I'm living and, and others around me. And the Chernobyl project is is um, coming out of the invitation to visit the site and really just trying to grapple with with what can be said about a place that's so talked about um, and and really sacrificed and sanctified for its relationship to disaster. Mm-hmm. And I guess in the in the Chernobyl uh, context, it's it's a site that's kind of uh, difficult to visit in many ways. It's in the imaginary in a historical sense, but at least in the Western context, uh, it's um, hard to know what's happening there now or how to look at it now. And uh, w- wondering if you can talk a little bit about your 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 visit there and the the actual like point of arrival on its edges and what comes up for you in 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 visiting and researching and looking at it now. Yeah, um, to go to Chernobyl, you have to have a guide, and when you go, someone takes you through the site, and you're pretty closely watched just so they try to make sure that, I mean, it's kind of a dangerous place. I mean, we know from radiation, but also because um, when you go, it was a city that is eroding. So just the materiality of the space is unstable. And there's lots of holes (laughs) from where the infrastructure of the city has dissolved or fallen apart, like manholes and things. So you have to be quite careful. And I think that's something I didn't really expect to be thinking about. Um, it feels it feels like a site that is both, of course, in our imaginary taken over by nature. Um, but what I felt really the most was the ur- urbanness of the of the city Pripyat. And what surprised me was how active the site still is. So the the Chernobyl nuclear power plant still has workers going to it every day. Um, and I think that we imagine this as a total ghost land, and it's really not. And the disaster is still unfolding, right? So people are still working with that. So I think I'm trying to think in a very big scale. So like the half-life of plutonium is 24,000 years. And so just trying to imagine what what we can do if we parse out human scale you know, the scale of the disaster, the scale of the trees living there, of the voles that are having uh, many, many generations of mutations, all of these things I'm trying to work with. So it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult. But what is emerging for me is, is thinking about these different relationships between the ecological and the disastrous and uh, the former utopian aspirations of the place. When I hear you... Um use the word disaster, I think of Blanchot and some other thinkers as well, and wondering, um, you know, who are you reading in relation to thinking these questions through? I'm trying to read just everything, to be honest. Um, I've read a lot about uh, the histories of Chernobyl, and now I'm, I'm kind of thinking with, I'm trying to think about time. So I'm reading a lot of, a lot of weird time schedules like I'm reading a lot of uh, Karen Barad with bringing kind of folding in physics and I'm also reading trying to read a lot of local Ukrainian um, writers that that were writing immediately after the disaster close to the disaster as well so I'm still really grappling with with what are the major 
I would, I guess, if you're thinking about the lit review, that would be, you know, the undergirding the work. I'm still really, it's huge for me right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, coming from uh, Tennessee to arriving in Vancouver, uh, what have you found the most challenging or interesting things in terms of uh, being in Vancouver now? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I haven't lived in Tennessee for quite some time, um, which is part of, I think, how I can ha- I can think about it more uh, analytically, I guess. But um, coming to Vancouver has been wonderful. I mean, first of all, one thing I notice is just the natural beauty and my relationship with nature is quite different than before I was living in New York for many, many years. And weirdly, it has some resonances with how I grew up, which is spending a lot of time in the woods and running, even though uh, the Appalachian Mountains are quite different than the mountains here. So in a weird way, it feels it feels a bit homey. Yeah, and I'm just trying to think about, too, the, you know, the rainy atmosphere, the seasonal atmosphere, and... Um, how, how to go about that. Uh, one thing that I really love is because I'm into utopias and um, obviously from, from what I've discussed today, I, I really love the Burnaby campus um, and this kind of imagination of, you know, this sort of concrete utopian, you know, space for the mind on the mountain, I think has been one of my delights since moving here. Yeah. That's amazing because you might be in the minority on that one, but you're on the Arthur Erickson side. You might want to visit University of Lethbridge too, because another one that he designed. Yeah, I think I am in the minority. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. think, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Thank you so much. It was delightful. Thanks for tuning in to hear from our guest, Lindsay Freeman. You can find her book, This Atom Bomb and Me, from Stanford University Press. And you can read more about her work at lindsayfreeman.net. Subscribe and follow us at btr underscore pod on Twitter to get the latest from below the radar. Thanks again. 